Section 22 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Kelly Taylor. The Unknown Tragedian by Anna Cora Mawit Ritchie. Chapter 6. Leonard Edmonton's interview with Elma had lifted him for a moment to the highest pinnacle of felicity then plunged him into an abyss of doubt. Certain and inevitable evil he could have encountered with calmness, but these perplexing, bewildering hopes and fears put to flight his wanted self-control. Delay became intolerable. He must see Elma that evening and entreat her full confidence. At the theater in Glasgow, Access behind the scenes was not attended with difficulty. A quarter of an hour before the rising of the curtain, Edmonton presented himself at the stage entrance and was requested to see Miss Ruthven. Without comment or question, the doorkeeper gave him admission. No guide was vouchsafed. Leonard entered and wandered about until he reached the back of the stage behind the flats. Here, a couple of carpenters were constructing a throne. King Lear was the tragedy to be represented that evening. He had written a few words on his card, and he wished to send it to Miss Ruthven. One of the men, without interrupting his occupation, shouted to Jock, the callboy. A sandy-haired lad answered the summons, received the card, and walked off, deliberately perusing the penciled lines as he went. A few moments afterwards, Elma, in her Cordelia attire, appeared before her lover. The carpenters had completed their royal elevation and now bore it away. Elma and Leonard stood alone in the dim light. She was no longer the blushing, trembling girl who had been surprised into the betrayal of her heart's dearest secret. She had advanced towards Leonard with a firm step an air of sad composure, a look of steady resolve. I fear I have committed an impropriety in presenting myself here, Elma, but I could not endure the state of torturing uncertainty in which I parted from you. I am glad that you came, replied Elma, very quietly. I have blamed myself severely for the false hope I gave you this morning. False hopes, Elma? Was I wrong, then, in believing what your looks told me in such thrilling language, must I doubt? Spare me, supplicated Elma. Do not try my strength. My heart may prove weaker than my judgment, my resolution. Then she added, in a quicker, more excited tone, But why need I make any concealment from you, who are worthy of all trust? I should not blush to admit that heaven could not bless me more, than exchanging my uncongenial present for a future by your side. Elma, what words of Elma interrupted him. Let me tell you all while I can. My parents chose for me a husband, one whom they loved, one whom I have the profoundest esteem. My dying mother placed my hand in his. My father clings to him with the devotion of a parent. I could not would not rob that infirm and grief-worn father of this chosen staff of his age. But, dearest, 
if his consent could be obtained. It is not possible. But if it were, an insuperable barrier still divides us. He to whom I was betrothed, Gerald Mortimer, as he is called, loves me with all the uncontrollable ardor of his strong nature. There is a mystery attached to him that I have not endeavored to penetrate. He will enfold it himself in good time. But sometimes I have fancied that there must be a hereditary insanity in that family to which he belongs. All painful excitements appear to unsettle his mind. I have exerted a calming influence over him which no one else seems to possess. Think you I could now purchase my happiness at that price, perhaps, of his reason? You are, then, engaged to him. I thought you told me you were free. I was engaged to him, but the moment he had caused me to doubt my affection, he generously released me. He now holds my written promise that I will never bestow my hand while he lives, unsanctioned by him. His consent, I well know, would be granted at a single word of mine, but that word, which must seal his misery, will never pass my lips. Be content with the confession I have so frankly made, that you are dearer to me than all else upon this earth. Though I will not wring my father's heart, I will not wreck Mortimer's happiness by becoming your wife. Never, never. At this moment, a groan, so full of mortal anguish, seemed the severing of a soul from its earthly tenement reached their ears. They turned. Elma recognized the kingly robes of Lear. No face was visible, for the clenched hands were pressed upon the brow. The figure passed silently on its way to the green room. "'It is Mortimer!' exclaimed Elma, in accents of consternation. "'He must have heard my words. Leave me, I pray you. Let me go to him at once, else some terrible consequence may ensue.' "'One word more, Elma. I honor, yes, with all my whole soul, I reverence your motives. I will not, even in thought, seek to alter your heroic resolution. I would be unworthy of you if I could do so.' Only grant me the privilege of sometimes seeing you still as the dearest of friends. But, come what may, even if we never behold each other again upon this earth, there is a realm where we must meet, and, until the day of that blessed reunion, be sure that my heart is true to yours. As mine will ever be, answered Elma, in a scarcely audible tone, with one confiding clasp of their hands. They parted. Elma sought Mortimer in vain, feared that, in the rash madness of the moment, he had rushed from the theatre. Just as the curtain rose, to her great relief, he joined the group who stood ready to take their situations on the stage in King Lear's hall of audience. His mien was placid. His thoughts were apparently engrossed in his part. When the act concluded, Elma approached and addressed him. He answered mildly. His manner was even calmer than usual. Elma began to doubt that he had overheard her words, but she could not rest without assuring herself and timidly asked, Was it not you whom I saw a few moments ago when I was conversing with, with Mr. Edmonton? 
Mortimer regarded her in amazement, then answered with forced composure, Probably. I was near you for a few seconds. Oh, Elma, Elma, why is it so hard for me to say, Yield up, O oh love, thy crown and hearted throne? Why are you so dear that the strength of a giant will cannot tear you from my thoughts? But do not fear, do not look so troubled. You have nothing to dread from me. I know it, Gerald. You have made a noble choice, Elma. His love is not a mere toy in the blood. It was the fanciful passion of Lord Oranmore. I have heard the praises of Leonard Edmonton from tongues that delight only in censure. Could Elma prevent the dawning smile that unconsciously stole over her countenance? Could Mortimer help the icy pang that smile shot through his heart? Do not say my choice, replied Elma, recovering herself. Mr. Edmonton is aware, expects nothing from me. Mortimer made no rejoinder, and Elma was at a loss in what manner to continue the conversation or to construe his silence. Lear was called to the stage. When the play concluded, Mortimer returned with Elma and Mr. Ruthven to their hotel. Elma could trace nothing unusual in the tragedian's conduct, no changeful fits and starts, no evidences of the great convulsion of spirit which she had cause to anticipate. When they parted, there was so much tenderness in his adieu, so much confiding affection in hers, that the aged parent, who sat contentedly gazing upon them, drew happy auguries from their mutual cordiality. As he pressed his lips on Elma's forehead and bestowed his knightly benediction, he said, Best of daughters, what a source of unmingled joy you have ever been to me, a joy that is ever increasing. You leave none of my wishes unfulfilled. It makes me glad at heart when I see you so kind to Gerald. You will not keep him much longer in suspense. Even these old eyes can see that plainly. My father, my father, exclaimed Elma, in a tone of deep anguish as she clung to him and hid her face upon his shoulder. What does that mean, Elma? God only knows the future, she answered, as she released her hold and, with slow steps, retired to her chamber. End of section 22